Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Rebuttal Podcast, where we break down cases, calamity, and chaos in the legal field. I am, once again, your host, Reb Maisel. If you have never been here before, hi, how are you? Take a seat. We have drinks. We have snacks. We have chaos. We have calamity. We have tomfoolery. We have clown shoes to watch usually someone else wear um, from afar from behind this microphone, from through this screen. Today on Rebuttal, we are going into protection, specifically witness protection, okay? We are going to dive into it. We are going to maneuver through the ins and outs of what exactly it is, okay? We've all heard of it. We've all pondered about what it would be like to have to go into it. We all have probably wondered, wow, is there someone around me in my life Okay, adjacent to me, someone at the grocery store, someone I work with, have worked with, some neighbor of mine who is literally right now in witness protection. This episode, what I wanted to get into are the drawbacks of it. Okay, some some controversies surrounding it, most notably starting with a very famous case, okay, in the 70s, 80s regarding an ex-CIA agent, okay, who may or may not have, you know, committed treason and illegal arms sales and trafficking, et cetera, claiming that he was doing it all um, at the behest of the CIA, of the federal government. And then, of course, the federal government was like, no, we didn't, wink, wink, and then threw him under the bus and into solitary confinement, Let's start there. This article was posted, was written by Peter Carlson at the Washington Post in on June 22nd, 2004. Sitting in a stark white cinder block room in Allenwood Federal Prison Camp, Edwin Wilson is telling stories about the good old days. Quote, I had a couple of villas that were very, very nice. He says, I had Pakistani houseboys and I had Libyans working for me, typing up proposals in Arabic, end quote. He's wearing a prison scrub shirt that looks as if it might have been dark blue in the distant past, but has faded to gray. His hair is gray, too. But Wilson, often described in newspapers as a rogue CIA agent, looks surprisingly good for a 76-year-old man who has spent the last 22 years in prison, much of it in solitary confinement. 
Tall and thin, he sports a neat white mustache that gives him the avuncular air of Walter Cronkite. Beneath his bushy white eyebrows, his eyes twinkle merrily as he tells stories of his wheeler dealer days in the 1970s when he was an arms merchant with offices in Libya, England, Switzerland, and Washington. Quote, Friday is a holiday in Libya, so I'd fly Thursday afternoon to Paris, then take the Concorde to Washington, he says. Because of the time difference, I'd get to Washington before I left Libya, Thursday afternoon. I'd go to the office on Thursday and Friday and work on my farm on Saturday. Sunday night, I'd be back in Libya. I was on a first-name basis with the stewardesses on the Concorde. End quote. Of course, half of the cons in prison tell stories about what big shots they were on the outside. But in Wilson's case, it's true more or less. After leaving the CIA in 1971, he made millions of dollars in the arms trade, enough to buy a 2,338-acre farm in the Tony Hunt country of Northern Virginia, where he entertained congressmen, generals, and CIA honchos, sometimes with drunken late-night hunting, shooting deer from a truck equipped with a big aircraft searchlight. But the fun ended for Wilson in 1982. The ex-CIA agent was lured out of Libya in a sting operation and arrested in the Dominican Republic. In three highly publicized trials, he was convicted of gun running, selling 20 tons of C4 plastic explosives to Libya, and conspiring to kill his prosecutors. By early 1984, at age 55, he was sentenced to 52 years in prison and his many enemies figured he would never get out. Wilson, of course, swore that he'd been framed, that he was working for the CIA all along, that they had green-lighted the whole operation. Few people paid attention. Half the cons in prison grumble about being framed by somebody. But Wilson spent 12 years prying documents out of the CIA and the Justice Department with endless Freedom of Information Act requests. Last October, meaning in October 2003, his efforts paid off. Citing those documents, a Houston federal judge threw out Wilson's conviction in the C-4 explosive case, ruling that the prosecutors had, quote, deliberately deceived the court about Wilson's continuing CIA contacts, thus double-crossing a part-time informal government agent. Now, as in in 2004, Wilson got 17 years cut off of his sentences from all of his badgering, Freedom of Information Act requests, basically yelling at the government, saying, y'all knew what I was doing and y'all were sanctioning it the whole time. Why y'all lying? Right. Wilson was scheduled to be released from prison September 14th, 2004, and indeed he was. He planned at the time to move back to Washington and start a business helping companies maneuver through the federal import-export bureaucracy. Quote, I've lined up a a couple of potential clients, he says, smiling. Unfortunately for Edwin Wilson, despite the fact that he did end up getting out early and then dying in Oregon uh, a few years later of natural causes, I believe it was heart failure, um, he was the scapegoat. He was the guinea pig, right? There are a whole host of top CIA operatives 
international leaders, U.S. officials who were involved in what Edwin Wilson is doing, right? It's never a one-man job, these types of import-export illegal dealings, arms trades, okay? But of course, he was the only one who really did any hard time, okay? He had a co-defendant named Frank Turpil, who was also an ex-CIA agent who never actually stood trial, although he was in, you know, charged, attempted to be indicted because he fled to Cuba. And he was a fugitive for the rest of his life and died in Cuba in 2016. <laughs> um, yeah, the only other person who served time in relation to the crimes of Edwin Wilson and company for illegal arms trades and Libyan okay, alleged terrorist activities was a man named Douglas Schlaughter. Douglas Schlaughter, though, only served about six months. Who was Douglas Schlaughter? He was uh, Edwin Wilson's personal assistant, okay? His right-hand guy. He was the one who was running errands for him. And those errands could be anything from dry cleaning to picking up a suitcase of cash. Of course, of course, of course. How did Douglas Schlaughter come into this? And why did he only get six months if he was really conspiring to commit treason? And, you know, violate international arms treaties, knowingly, willingly, voluntarily, well, he was what many would call a snitch. On January 7th, 1982, at 7.30 a.m. in Washington, D.C., the CBS television network reported the following about a top story titled, quote, CIA involvement in Libyan activities. Another charge of CIA involvement in Libyan terrorist activities has been raised, this time in a Washington courtroom. Douglas Slaughter, the former personal assistant of former CIA agent Edwin Wilson, claims to have run a Libyan training program, and he agreed yesterday to plead guilty to the illegal exporting of explosives. Slaughter's plea will likely not be the end of the case, but only the beginning. In a heavily guarded federal courtroom with all spectators first checked for weapons, Douglas Slaughter sat quietly, letting the lawyers do all the talking. They informed the judge that Schlaughter would not only plead guilty, but also, as they put it, cooperate fully, completely, and truthfully with federal investigators. According to Douglas's lawyer, among the things Schlaughter has already told authorities is that two senior CIA officials, Theodore Shackley and Thomas Kleins, were fully aware of ex-CIA agent Ed Edward Wilson's allegedly illegal terrorist activities. Basically, Douglas told federal authorities that former CIA agent Edwin Wilson, who, again, would eventually serve decades in prison in solitary confinement for this shit, was given instructions from active agents in the agency, the CIA, and that he, in fact, came back and reported to them and took instructions from them during his time in Libya. Douglas Schlaughter directly implicated the senior CIA officials that knew about the activities that former CIA agent Wilson was conducting in Libya. He was training Libyans in explosives at the CIA's directive. He was making bombs and manufacturing bombs at the CIA's directive and recruiting Green Berets at the CIA's directive. For its part, the CIA has not absolutely denied Douglas Slaughter's allegations. A CIA spokesman would only say that a search of the, filed had the, had, of the files had thus far disclosed no documentary evidence to support the allegation. 
Privately, one top official said, quote, you can't rule out the possibility of an unauthorized operation. Mind you, how did they get Schlatter? Well, they didn't know where the fuck he was. How did they find him, you may ask? Well, his whereabouts were finally discovered when he applied for a U.S. passport for a newly born daughter. Along with his girlfriend, Tina Simons, he had fled to Burundi, a Central African country which had no extradition treaty with the U.S. He had set up an air freight forwarding operation there. Tina Simmons, okay, his girlfriend, yeah, emphasis on girlfriend, he was married. Not to her, not to the girlfriend, he was married with kids, okay? To a different girl, a different woman in the U.S. who had no fucking idea where he was, right? This podcast, I feel like, might as well be renamed the Deadbeat Dad Chronicles because how many have we seen? A whole fucking lot, okay? And it's about to get worse. So Douglas Schlatter, all right, is eventually captured. Hi, how are you? And he says, plea deal, plea deal, plea deal. I'll tell you everything I want you want to know, as one does. Um, so, you know, he he serves a handful of months in prison. But if you can imagine, if you can gather, um, yeah, he's in danger. Okay, he's in danger after his six-month stint in federal prison. Okay, basically a vacay for him in comparison to Edwin Wilson's 20 fucking years in solitary plus some. Um, and, and you know, he – yeah, he has some major, major enemies, okay, around the globe. He went global, okay, for, for exposing all this shit and for naming names. He named fucking names, okay? He named names. He was like, you, 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 and you. So um, they put him in a little something called witness protection, great candidate for witness protection, right? 100%. No disputing that. But let's hear what happens. In exchange for Schlatter's testimony against an organized crime figure, the Attorney General of the United States agreed to relocate him and change his identity in order to ensure his safety. Though legally married, Schlatter chose not to be relocated with his wife and children preferring instead to move with his girlfriend and her child. Since that date, Doug's wife has fallen heir and become responsible to all of the debts and other obligations that Schlatter left behind. He said, oh, the wife and kids? Not a vibe. Maybe I should just arms traffic, international terrorism, involve myself. With ex-CIA agents running espionage campaigns in Libya so that one day I can go into witness protection for snitching and then be able to justify and have the governmental okay to be relocated with a brand new life identity, clean slate with my girlfriend and her son and say, fuck you to my wife and kids. Men will do literally anything but get a divorce, like literally everything that they can. Homicide, kill their entire family, disappear, kidnap, threaten, fake a death, the whole fucking shebang, become an international arms dealer instead of just like filing the paper, like file the papers, like Google divorce attorney in your area. I'm tired, I'm exhausted, I'm sleepy, I'm done. With the Deadbeat Dad Chronicles. Here's chapter fucking 40, all right? God damn. So, since Doug, Dougie boy, okay, since Doug went into witness protection, the government has refused to disclose Mrs. Schlaughter's husband's whereabouts to her. 
on the ground that this might endanger him. Mrs. Schlatter herself has a claim against Doug, the witness. A state court has awarded her child support a judgment she has been unable to enforce because she cannot find Doug and because the government has refused to force compliance with the judgment. At a congressional hearing in 1982, Mrs. Schlatter expressed dismay and frustration at being forced to cover her husband's debts while she and her children live without basic necessities. This is the testimony of Janet Schlatter, wife of a protected witness, Doug Schlatter. I am Janet Schlatter, and my husband is Douglas M. Schlatter. Doug was offered protection under the Witness Relocation Program in about December 1982 because of his involvement and association in the business dealings of Edwin P. Wilson and Frank Turpil, both former CIA agents who were later charged with a whole lot of terrorist-related activities and arms-dealing charges. The reason I am speaking to you this morning is because I hope to illustrate by my own experience how the witness relocation program can hurt innocent people while protecting the witness. I feel I am a victim. As a victim, I cannot accept the unfairness of the witness relocation program when you weigh the injustices done to the families versus the protection and new identity given to the witness. At the time of Doug's acceptance into the program, we were having marital problems. Whether by design or by convenience, my husband used his participation in the witness relocation program to shirk his responsibilities. I am presenting our story to you not only for myself and my children, but also for the hundreds of families who are in the same or similar situation. The point is you have to protect the families from the witness as well as protect the witness from his enemies. Bars. Two areas I would like to focus on are financial and emotional. Number one, the state of Virginia has withheld my state tax refund for the year 1980 and part of 1981 against the last joint return filed by Doug and me in 1977. The stated reason was underpayment of estimated taxes. During this period of time, my income was straight salary and Doug's was estimated, yet I am held responsible. While to most people, we are not talking about a great deal of money, approximately $140. Remember, this is 1984 when she testified. That amount will supply groceries for a month or pay the gas bill for three months or pay all utilities for a month and a half in our household. Number two, unpaid bills and credit status left by Doug have prevented me from getting a smaller, more economical car, and neither can I obtain credit that is often needed with a family. It is estimated that approximately $40,000 have been left in unpaid bills. In 1984, $40,000 is $121,123 approximately in 2024. I'm going to go chat my shit as a snitch, as a witness, and then leave you with a hundred and almost 130 grand in debt. Get fucked. Yep. This ranges from large amounts on credit cards to bills for minor repairs made to the home Doug and I shared before he fled the country in 1979. Number three, Fairfax County personal property taxes that were imposed on vehicles Doug and I owned when the children and I relocated into the county are still unpaid. Here again, I alone am being held responsible for these taxes. On my salary, I am unable to pay, pay them. Therefore, I cannot obtain county registration for my car until the back taxes of approximately $1,200 are paid. 
From the standpoint of all the workings of the financial, legal, and tax machinery, it is like we are still married. In fact, we are still legally married. And this being the case, what you have is a situation where I have fallen heir and responsible to all of Doug's debts debts, and responsibilities for our children while my husband is given federal protection. Number four, after the courts of Virginia awarded me child support in the amount of $1,500 per month, that is $500 per child, on December 22nd, 1981, Doug was being paid approximately $100 per month, according to E. Lawrence Barcello, assistant U.S. attorney, yet he was not required to even attempt to pay any monies toward the support of his legitimate children. Jaw on the floor, because he's being protected. Number five, as recent as July of 1982, my children and I went without gas. This means without a stove and without hot water for a period of 11 days due to my being unable to pay the outstanding bill. Money was borrowed from a personal friend to have the service reconnected. Part of that money is still owed. Number six, before Doug returned to the United States in November 1981, The government knew that he and I were legally married and had been for 17 years with three minor children. They had three kids together, okay? Three children, three minor children. This was discussed with federal agents Wadsworth and Peterson in September of 1981. And yet in November, agents accompanied Doug, his female companion, Christina Tina Simon, and their infant daughter to the United States from England. They were housed together as a family, completely ignoring his legal family in the U.S. The federal government was, in fact, promoting adultery with my tax dollars while my children go without proper medical and dental care and without a proper balanced diet. She has bars here. I would be live. Oh, whoo. And right, you can't even be like, pull up like I'm a I want words. You can't even have words with this motherfucker. You don't know where he is. They hid him from you. Oh, my good Lord. What you have, in effect, is a situation where my husband, the woman he wants to live with at this time, and their child are supported by the money of the people of the United States. The money of Janet Schlaughter, me, has to cover my husband's debts while I scrape to put food on the table. The children have not been to the dentist in three years. We use home remedies because there is not enough money to pay for doctors except as a last resort. There are outstanding bills for hospital and doctor's care for the children at this time of approximately $150, for which I am being hounded by bill collectors to pay. The things most families have, like vacations, recreational opportunities, and the hope for a normal life for my children is just a dream. I realize the emotional part of this situation is one that my children and I must work out for ourselves, but the turmoil a family is forced to go through is very great. Your pride is crushed. You try to withdraw as much as possible from the public view to eliminate the embarrassment you face. In order not to be harassed at home, Janet says, our phone must be listed under another name. This eliminates the possibility of people even finding which city we live in. My family is faced in the immediate future with having to relocate again. The small house we rent is up for sale, and without financial assistance, there is no way we can buy this house. How unfair that once again, the children and I are the ones that have to pay the price. While our boy Doug is hidden away with his mistress on taxpayer dollars, scot-free clean slate. 
wild. In some instances, she says, I understand the family goes into the program with the witness. However, there are times such as mine that the witness chooses to leave them behind. In such cases, I believe the following items are vital for immediate consideration for future legislation. And then she goes on to list that she believes dependent children should receive benefits, that all assets of the witness should be confiscated and used to provide for the spouse and child they're leaving behind, that any debts that are left by the witness, um, yeah, uh, should should be his fucking problem and not the family's problem. And if there is a child support court order, that, uh, yeah, it should be enforceable in some way, shape, or form. So Mrs. Janet Slaughter ends her testimony before Congress saying, uh, yeah, thank you. I would like to thank you for listening to me this morning. I realize that no two situations are the same and that few of them are simple. It is up to you, the law, the lawmakers, to see that laws are written to protect the innocent families. After all, you protect the witness, you give him a new identity, and you wash away his past. We are his past. And she testified specifically at a hearing um, before a con- congressional committee that was looking to reform the U.S. protection program at the time um, and consider some new additions, some new edits, some new, um, oh, I don't know, fixes to it, okay? Because at that time, it was relatively new. Let's get into the history of the Witness Protection Program, how it started, how it's going. Janet Schlatter's problem is not an isolated one. After a witness has been relocated and given a new identity, he or she is virtually impossible to find. If the witness has entered the program with outstanding obligations, the creditors have no way to locate him or her to collect the debts. And if a participant enters the program with children from a previous marriage, the non-relocated parent is likely to be completely cut off from the children, even though a divorce decree may have awarded that parent custody or visitation rights. These frustrated creditors and parents have brought suit against Witness Protection Program participants and the government, seeking the assistance of the federal courts in the satisfaction of their claims. Thus far, however, the courts have refused to help them in the absence of a specific statutory requirement, aka the Congress needs to pass pass an edit to this uh, statute that actually um, allows for the Witness Protection Program um, in order to let you have any justice, okay? And so what Janet Schlatter was testifying at was uh, one of the hearings, the committee hearings before Congress, discussing and debating, passing some of those edits and resolutions and uh, amendments to that statute because holy shit, right? We got some issues and we have some people who are bad people, right? Because like a lot of people who go into witness protection, okay, um, if you can imagine, and I'm sure this isn't a completely, you know, crazy thing to think about, but I think that we all often think of people going into witness protection who are like the innocent bystander type witness. You know what I mean? Like someone who 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 would be threatened by a gang, by the mob for coming forward, for saying anything, or someone who just wants to like, you know, clear their conscience, whatever, and like actually is like a good person. Yeah, no, like most of these people are like bad fucking people. Like most of these people are dog shit human beings. Even when they're in like witness protection, who the fuck protects the public from the witnesses? We're protecting the witnesses from the public, but who's protecting the public from the witnesses? Because um, they're like still bad people. And and like and in some cases, they keep doing bad shit. They're like, oh my God, yay. Like I started over on the life monopoly game board. Let's ride bitches. Like don't pass go type B. Okay, no bueno, not good. Douglas was clearly fucking one of them in the sense that he wanted to uh, be a deadbeat father. 
And he was able to literally do that successfully. I don't couldn't tell you where he is now. Couldn't tell you what his new identity is. No one could except for him and the prosecutors who hit him. Isn't that lovely and gorgeous and perfect? This episode is very much me just being like, damn, isn't this wild? More so than like some like kind of like policy proposal or some shit. This is like sh- more so shit that I would just like bring up at a random fucking party. And then I want you guys to bring up at random parties because, you know what I mean? Like, damn, like, when is production? Like, ain't it? Ain't it fun? Ain't it fun? Look at this. Look at that shit. Get a load of this shit. You know what I mean? So if you were looking for me to spit some fucking wisdom on how to fix it, I I got none. I got absolutely nothing for you. Uh, so, uh, yeah. Would lo- open, open to your thoughts. <laughs> I just think it's crazy. I did not think about the fact that deadbeat fathers would would get a hold of this and and say fuck yeah sign me up <laughs> cuz they all, if if deadbeat fathers worked half as hard at parenting as they did trying to get out of fucking parenting they would be fathers of the year like bending over backwards 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 In May 2013, the Department of Justice Office of the Inspector General, OIG, issued an audit report on the handling of known or suspected terrorists in the Federal Witness Security Program. The Federal Witness Security Program, or WITSEC, is the official name of what has become commonly known as the Witness Protection Program, or WPP. All of these terms and names are used interchangeably. They mean the same thing. In the public summary of the audit report, the OIG disclosed a number of troubling concerns with the Witness Protection Program, particularly concerning national security. The audit report cautioned that the identified deficiencies required immediate remedy and should be promptly and sufficiently addressed by the DOJ leadership. While acknowledging the WPP remains a critical prosecutorial tool in the fight against global terrorism, The audit report concluded that permitting known or suspected terrorists to enter the program created and or exacerbated national security vulnerabilities. For example, after admitting known or suspected terrorists into the WPP, the DOJ on several occasions failed to report the new government provided identities of the protected witnesses to the terrorist screening center so as to facilitate continued monitoring of their activities particularly any efforts to fly on commercial aircraft. So keep them on the no-fly list. Holy shit. In addition to this critical lapse in information sharing, the audit report revealed that, quote, in July 2012, the United States Marshal Service was unable to locate two former Witness Protection Program participants identified as known or suspected terrorists, and that through its investigative efforts, it has concluded that one individual was outside of the U.S. and the other individual was believed to be residing outside of the U.S., end quote. That's the technical way of saying we have no fucking idea where these people are. We lost them. We gave them the tools they needed to get out of Dodge and stay out of Dodge and literally get off of everyone's radar and do whatever they want. And fingers crossed they don't, right, do terrorist activities again. XOXO Gossip Girl. These inconsistent tracking methods for people, participants in the witness protection program 
also resulted in the DOJ being unable to definitively account for how many known or suspected terrorists were actually in the witness protection program. They were like, we have no, fu- hey, can you give us a number? No fucking clue. We lost that list a while back. Shit. <laughs> so shambly. We are so shambly dambly, rickety ass wagon cr- type crew, skeleton crew in the, in this US of A. Best country in the world, greatest country in the world, spending trillies, billies, millies upon millies every single fucking minute, second of the day on some new big massive toy, military toy, gun, cannon, plane, helicopter that we need for, quote, wartime, okay? But really, we're just giving to some ex-frat boy who didn't want a college degree, but damn, did he want to shoot some shit in a uniform to fly around in the middle of the desert somewhere and crash into shit and burn fuel that's finite, that's fossil derived. Look, listen, look and listen. But we can't do this. Like, we can't do this shit. We can't keep track of bitches that we put in our own program. Whatever. But who am I, right? Who the fuck am I? Despite these procedural deficiencies and the potential compromise of national security interests, Armando Bonilla, a senior counsel in the office of the deputy attorney general, quote, defended the use of the witness protection program for terrorism cases, saying that it had been key in securing cooperation for witnesses necessary for successful prosecutions, that no terrorism-linked witness ever has committed a single act of terrorism after entering the program, which is a bold statement to make considering you don't even know where half of them are, and that an FBI review of participants revealed none who posed a threat to national security, end quote, which, like, again, like, doesn't really play with the audit at all, but whatever. In addition, the DOJ's response to the audit report explained that corrective action on many of the deficiencies had already been implemented. These actions included enhanced information sharing and, quote, formal protocols that provide for greater oversight of the evaluation and screening of WPP applications, as well as for enhanced monitoring of known or suspected terrorists admitted to the program. The audit report provides a glimpse into the evolution of the modern-day witness protection program, which has obviously evolved since 1980s, um, 1981, 1982, when, you know, our girl Janet Schlatter was testifying and saying, yeah, Doug is in the wind and I am in debt. What in the fuck? Okay. Witness protection program under the auspices of Title V of the Organized Crime Control Act of 1970 was originally formulated to ensure witness testimony in organized crime proceedings and provide for the health, safety, and welfare of witnesses and their families both during and after those proceedings, primarily for, like, mob bosses, okay? Like, this was, like, the mob mafia-type crime wars between the government, the U.S. government, prosecutors, okay, state and, state and federal, okay, everyone in the world, Versus all the mobsters, the mafia, the mobsters, all right, who were getting away with a lot of shit and um, killing all the snitches, intimidating all the snitches and and preventing literally anyone from going to prison because who could testify, right? No one. You got no evidence. So that was like the main, okay, like rationale and reasoning behind the initial implementation of the witness protection program um, in the U.S. specifically was to literally protect and hide like middle-aged mob bosses. That was the goal because they were the ones who were like getting 
getting canned, okay? In an effort to gain a prosecutorial toehold into the world of organized crime, the government established a program to relocate and change the identities of persons who could provide testimony in criminal cases against members of organized crime families. According to Gerald Schur, who founded the WPP in the 1960s, quote, we had to find a way to make a mid-level gangster vulnerable, and then we had to offer him a way out. That's what I explained in my memo, but there was another piece to the puzzle. We had to be able to offer a gangster protection. We had to prove we could keep a mobster alive if he testified for us. We had to create some kind of protection program. But how? End quote. Eventually, Schur settled on a solution, protection through anonymity, because, quote, the best way to keep a witness safe was by moving him away from the danger area, moving him to a place where no one knew where he was, who he was, then giving him a new identity so he couldn't be followed. Schur's solution was ultimately adopted by the President's Commission on Law Enforcement and the Administration of Justice. The commission recommended the federal government, quote, should use residential facilities for the protection of witnesses desiring such assistance. After trial, the witness should be permitted to remain at the facility so long as he needs to be protected. The federal government also should establish regular procedures to help federal and local witnesses who fear organized crime reprisal to find jobs and places to live in other parts of the country and to preserve their anonymity from organized crime groups. Because the initial implementation of the WPP, the Witness Protection Program, lacked specific procedural guidelines, the scope of the protection obligation was simply resolved on a case-by-case basis, aka you're protected for as long and with as much and as many resources that we have as whatever is decided in the moment. Whoever is on the case, on call, the prosecutor or the marshals or whoever, law enforcement, who is like dealing with you, yeah, like it's their call. There weren't any fucking guidelines. Most witnesses were provided with changed identities, new locations, subsistence payments, and assistance with obtaining employment. However, despite the government's best efforts during these early days, stories abounded of witnesses returning to their criminal ways after entering the Witness Protection Program, which brought home the stark realization that, quote, someone innocent was going to get hurt someday because of these witnesses, end quote. God, I could have called this from a mile away, but it's not because I'm saying I'm like anti-witness protection. Of course, I'm not. Of course, you're going to hear, okay, in the latter half of this episode, some absolutely appalling and gnarly instances where, God, if only the witness protection program had been employed properly, then these people would still be alive today just because they were, you know, brave enough to speak up and to try to help in the quest for justice or to put, you know, horrible people away or contribute to evidence against them, what have you. I mean, uh, most often you guys realize, okay, yeah, of course, right? You have witnesses like Douglas, okay? Dougie Doug Schlaughter. They basically said, hey, we're going to throw the fucking book at you or you can take, you can plead down, okay, to six months, okay, in this prison, go into witness witness production, but you're going to sing like a fucking canary and tell us everything. And he said, okay, fine. This would be one day, like woke up the day that he was supposed to testify or tell all the, all the, you know, law enforcement, all the shit that he knew. And then he was like, never got, never mind, just kidding. They'd be like, okay, word, here's 20, you know, I mean, we're charging you with everything and we're, we're, we're asking for 50 years, 20 years, you know? But in many other cases, okay, it's not just the people who are pleading down that, 
that need the witness protection afterwards. It's like people who don't have a fucking choice to to testify. Okay? Not because they have like a plea deal in the works or whatever. They don't have a choice because that's the way that our justice system works. That's the way that our adversarial system operates. When you get subpoenaed to testify, it's not an option. It's not a, hey, do you mind? It's a, you will be held in contempt of court situation. Okay. Like if you get a subpoena to testify, Okay, because uh, whatever, you know what I mean? Like you worked with somebody who X, Y, Z or whatever. Like, yeah, more often than not, the people who are testifying or coming to testify and speak are doing it willingly and voluntarily in the sense of like, yes, they were still subpoenaed, but like they would have been willing to help regardless or like willing to like speak their piece regardless, whether for in on behalf of the defendant or on behalf of the prosecution. Like, look, the knife slices both ways, but so many fucking witnesses are literally on the stand like this, like so annoyed, so over it. They're like, we don't want to fucking be here, right? Because right, like it's unpaid as hell. And but but right, the threat, literally the threat of the threat of contempt and the threat of of potential adverse consequences, fines, contempt of court, et cetera, et cetera, for not showing up, you know? For these types of witnesses in these types of cases, of fucking course, okay? The people who are being subpoenaed. They're like, we don't, nope, we don't want to fucking, no chance. Like, throw me in contempt then, bitch. I don't give a fuck. You know what I mean? Like, I do not care. I'm going to be killed. Like, I will, like, oh, you're, you want to put me on the stand? My full government name, okay? On the stand? Absolutely not. The reason why we can't just put a big fucking blindfold on everyone in court and go, okay, we're going to use a voice distortion on this person while they speak so that none of you know who they are, but we promise they're credible, is because of the Sixth Amendment right for a defendant to confront their witnesses, okay? You cannot 99.99% of the time have an anonymous witness testify against you in court because the credibility of the witness, right, like has to be, has to have some kind of foundation and you as an accused person have the right to confront the people who, who are accusing you of shit, who are witnesses. That means that the witness protection program, like you can't like assume a new name face like situation before you testify. You got to like pull up in the capacity that you were to be able to have obtained the information that you did, lay the foundation for obtaining that information, testify, and then they escort you out. They're like, all right, let's get you somewhere safe. You know what I mean? That's why. That's why. Okay. Over time, the courts further outlined the government's duty of protection by concluding that the attorney general has, quote, wide latitude in determining the participants in the witness protection program and that there is no notice or hearing requirement before or after termination because witnesses are not deprived of any liberty or property interest envisioned by the due process clause in being kicked out of the program, okay? Sometimes you can just be kicked out. Imagine that all right, you're done. Like, do you like assume your old name then? That's kind of wonky. If you've been the same name for like this new name for like five years, do they just say, hey, this is the last identity you get? Like, I, like what is, what? what's about like, wh what else do you get with the program, right? That would like be an L if you, if you were kicked out. Cause my thing is like, if you kicked me out and literally like took my, said, give me that back, like took my new passport, took my new name and like, literally were like forced me to use my old name I'd be like what the fuck like okay at this point you're like bait like at this point you're basically putting a target on my head I know I broke some rules but like come on that's how it goes and and like people have tried to sue about it 
Okay, former participants in the program have tried to sue and be like, y'all owe me money and damages because like, what the fuck did you like? I was just rickrolled and judges have been like, you don't have a right to be in that program. Like you broke the rules you were out like by. Why? While the case law, quote, solidified the government's complete control and discretion with respect to the witness protection program, it did not clarify the government's obligations to non-relocated parents, debt collectors, and others who suffered at the hands of relocated witnesses. Like I said, non-relocated parents, our girl Janet, okay? Goddamn, all right? What the fuck? Not getting her, not her fucking deadbeat father, baby father, okay? And husband, literally current husband, that she's still technically married to. She can't get divorced from. Blah, blah, blah. Not paying custody. She has all his debt obligations. Blah, blah, blah. Debt collectors in the context of Doug, okay, Doug Schlatter, there were, I mean, I had I pulled up two and then I was like, these are going to be boring to even go over. A bunch of people have sued him for like libel and defamation, blah, 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 all this stuff. And it's literally said like at the end of the opinion, like, yeah, like the judges made all these findings that yes, like he definitely committed libel against you. Um, but, like, he didn't appear because he's in the witness protection program. So, like, I guess judgment for you. But, like, good luck enforcing the judgment. Stuff like that. Okay? And then also, others who suffered harm at the hands of relocated witnesses and the stories of some witnesses going, hey, fucking wire. Great. The Witness Security Reform Act of 1984 was enacted in part to address those serious and persistent substantive issues with this statute. With this statutory imprimatur, the attorney general now had the legal authority, as of 1984, to provide for the care and protection of witnesses in whatever manner was deemed most useful under the special circumstances of each case, and to reduce the likelihood of harm to innocent third parties as it carried out that that mission, okay? So then it became a requirement, okay, for y'all to try to reduce. What does try your very best to reduce mean for everybody, right? What is everyone's best? Probably not great. The first major major statutory overhaul to the WPP occurred in 1984 with the enactment of 18 USC section 3521 through 28. Oh, God. (laughs) Quote, in response to the major criticisms of the WPP, The 1984 Reform Act established an overall basic structure for the Witness Protection Program while simultaneously allowing the Attorney General broader discretion in some significant areas. So, like, putting some protection, but, like, broadening. So, like, which is it? Which is it? Among other things, these statutes set forth the Attorney General's discretionary authority, meaning they can do it if they want. They don't have to. Discretion discretionary authority to provide for the relocation and protection of witnesses if a crime of violence is likely to be committed against the witness and or his family as a result of the witness's testimony. So that's the standard. To further emphasize the breadth of the government's discretion, the statute expressly releases the attorney general from civil liability for, quote, any decision to provide or not to provide protection to witnesses and authors the attorney general to take actions to protect and relocate witnesses for as long as, quote, in the, adjud- in the judgment of the attorney general, the danger to that person exists, end quote. So, like, think about that kind of power. No one can tell you shit about shit, even if you're literally murdered because you were rejected. The attorney general said, nope, you're, you're going to be fine. And you were like, no, I'm not going to be fine. They're like, you're going to be fine. You're killed or or right? A victim of a crime of violence as a result of your testimony, you have no recourse against the attorney general for making that bad call. 
Sounds a lot like qualified immunity, doesn't it, for cops? Like, oh, well, they were acting in their official capacity, so, like, you can't sue them for literally doing something that's illegal against the law and being horrible. Uh, Yeah, that's what it fucking sounds like, doesn't it? Doesn't it, doesn't it? Subsection C of 18 U.S.C. Section 3521 requires the attorney general to perform a suitability analysis on any potential witnesses, which may include an assessment of the criminal history of the witness and a requirement that the witness undergo psychological evaluation. Overall, the attorney general shall consider, quote, the the person's criminal record, alternatives to providing protection under this chapter, the possibility of securing similar testimony from other sources, the need for protecting the person, the relative importance of the person's testimony, yada, yada, yada. The statute also requires that a memorandum of understanding shall be executed between the government and the protected witnesses. The terms of the memorandum are extensive and mandate, among other things, that witnesses provide testimony, refrain from criminal conduct, take steps to maintain their security, and comply with all legal obligations, including those associated with civil judgments and child custody and visitation. Janet, our girl Janet, got her day, okay? Got her day, got her testimony, got her hearing before Congress to say, hey, let's let's add a deadbeat father provision. But the issue, okay, the issue is that the termination of someone being in the witness protection program or like being kicked out, right, is still like discretionary, okay, for the attorney general, like a call for the attorney general to make ultimately, even if you can point to a bajillion things that they fucking violated, all right, substantial breach of all these obligations. They actually didn't fucking comply with their child custody, child support payment situation. They didn't comply with all their debt obligations, da, da, da. The attorney general can still be like shrug. What do you what do you want him to do about it? Like most other aspects of the WPP, termination from the program is at the discretion of the attorney general, and such proceeding, proceedings may be instituted if there is a substantial breach of the provisions of the memorandum, including submitting false statements related to child custody and visitation. Witnesses subject to termination are entitled to receive notice and the reasons for termination. However, the decision to terminate will not be subject to judicial review, meaning a judge, you can't appeal it to a judge. It's just just final. It's just martial law up in this bitch, okay? Up in the witness protection program, up in the WPP, okay? To address longstanding concerns or an attempt to address longstanding concerns with the avoidance of debt obligations by protected witnesses, Doug, we're looking at you. The statute includes a special section on civil judgments. If a civil judgment is entered against a protected witness, she must make reasonable efforts to comply with the judgment. If the attorney general determines that such efforts are not being made, then, quote, after considering the danger to the person and upon the request of the person holding the judgment, the attorney general may, but does not have to, may, aka it's optional, attorney general may, May disclose the identity and location of the person to the plaintiff entitled to recovery pursuant to the judgment, aka like in an effort to seek that judgment, you got to like serve them with all that stuff. You know what I mean? Like find them. Okay. Such disclosure is only for purposes of a little. Such disclosure is only for the purpose of allowing the plaintiff to collect on the judgment and further disclosure not associated with this purpose is prohibited. If the attorney general like in Janet's case, declines a request to disclose the identity of the protected witness to a person holding a valid judgment against them, then upon petition to the court, a guardian may be appointed to act in the interests of the judgment holder. 
Upon appointment, the guardian shall have the power to perform any act with respect to the judgment with the judgment which the judgment holder could perform, including the initiation of judicial enforcement actions in any federal or state court or the assignment of such enforcement actions to a third party under applicable federal or state law. So essentially, you're like appointing someone to stand in there instead. Child custody and visitation arrangements are also provided for in the statute. The primary focus of these provisions is protecting the security of relocated witnesses while also maintaining the best interests of children of relocated parents, for example, to highlight the seriousness of maintaining family relationships if it is determined that a potential witness would not be able to comply with a custody or visitation order while under protection then the attorney general may decline to offer protection unless the witness seeks to modify the current custody or visitation order. Upon relocation, the non-relocated parent is notified that his rights to visitation or custody or both under the court order shall not be infringed by the relocation of the child and the Department of Justice responsibility with respect thereto. The Reform Act of 1984 is trying to address all of these issues and concerns uh, with specifically deadbeat dads. Literally like high... God, let's go back to the drawing table. Fathers are going to be dead and they're going to be beat. <laughs> Amazing. Finally, to address the potential harm to innocent third parties, okay, by witnesses who are not exactly scot-free and not exactly great, awesome people, the statute establishes a victim's con compensation fund, which allows the attorney general to pay restitution to, or in the case of death, compensation for the death of any victim of a crime that causes or threatens death or serious bodily injury and that is committed by any person during a period in which that person is provided protection under the witness protection program. But um, yeah, as discussed earlier, a recent audit, like a 2013 audit of the witness protection program revealed difficulties since this reform act was instituted in 1984 with handling of pretty much all of this, but like specifically like known or suspected terrorists in the program. All right. In addition to like, well, I don't know, many other breaches um, in, in, in people, right. Committing criminal violations while they're in, while they're in the program. Okay. While they're in the program and then it, getting away with it. And also, you know, leaving, leaving the people that they leave behind to deal with their fucking debts and shit. Okay. Um, as of 2013, in this article that I'm reading from, one of many, um, more than 88,500 witnesses and 9,900 of their authorized family members have participated in the witness protection program since it began in 1971. While the focus was almost exclusively on organized crime during the early years, terrorism has now emerged as the next frontier for government crime fighting and prosecution. Just as with organized crime families, infiltrating terrorist organizations often requires recruiting those from within the organization to provide evidence against higher-ranking members in order to secure convictions and eventually dismantle the organization. This article that I'm reading from is primarily focusing on terrorism on like a grand national or global scale. Um, I think that most defense attorneys and prosecutors, law enforcement officials on either side of the fence would say that in many states, particularly states with heavy gang presence affiliations um one of them being california that is very much where the witness protection program comes up okay more so and to emphasize numerous citizens numerous people numerous people have sued the federal government for injuries suffered at the hands of witness protection program witnesses okay people who aren't currently 
or formerly in the program, okay, who are hidden, identities not disclosed, attorney general refused to disclose them, and, you know, people were either injured because there was no right notification to anyone around them, working with them, living near them, that these were violent criminals, uh, when in reality, if they wouldn't have been in the WPP, there would have been such notification. For example, like sex offenders. Sex offenders are in the program. Uh-huh. Do you think that when they get their new identity, they are listed as being the person from before who committed those crimes? Probably not. Probably not. Surely not. Okay? So then when they continue to commit criminal offenses, acts, uh, the people who are then harmed by those individuals and when they realize oh wait this is a wpp this is a witness protected this is a protected witness you're joking right then they immediately are like what the fuck i should have right i should have been notified i should have known i would never like right why are they why are they this close to a school why wasn't that considered and of course right there's probably protocol in the wpp manual and the guidelines that says hey don't put the fucking sex offenders near a fucking squala okay maybe avoid those areas. You don't like human error, human fucking error. You don't think some fucking law enforcement officials on these cases are fucking half-assing their jobs or don't think about it or fuck up. Yeah, they do all the time, but someone should be, should be held responsible, shouldn't they? You would think. Uh, Courts have repeatedly found that, that federal decisions concerning the selection and protection of witnesses are discretionary acts for which the government cannot be held liable. What, however they choose to hide and protect these people, is not is not up to you to sue about or you to yell at them about. That has been like pretty much overwhelmingly a fact. So here are a few examples of situations and cases where shit can go awry um, for the kind of opposite reason, right? You heard about all the reasons why, you know, witnesses who are in this program can kind of fucking suck. But also the, the existence of the program is also is very important. It's very important. Imperfect system causes imperfection to run rampant. Warning right here for you guys to flip a U-turn. We are about to start discussing a few cases where there has been violence against children. A bit gnarly. So if you want to stop now, stop now. But if not, here we go. Brenda Paz was a girl like any other. Born in Honduras and the youngest of 16 children, she migrated to the United States at a young age. When Brenda was 15, Her mother developed a severe mental health condition that forced the family to return to Honduras where they could afford treatment. To allow Brenda to continue her education in the United States, she was sent to live with her uncle in Texas. Struggling to adjust to the new surroundings and to her distant, unloving uncle and craving social acceptance, she started socializing with the wrong crowd. An easy target, she was soon recruited as a member of the MS-13, America's most violent gang. She dropped out of school and ran away from her uncle's house. The streets of Texas became her home and her gang, her homies, who are her family. By the age of 16, her life had transformed from that of a loved and cared for all a student to a runaway street life of crime and violence. And she was torn between those two conflicting selves. When she was arrested for car theft, she recognized that her only way out of the gang was to cooperate with the police and become an informant despite the danger involved. 
after providing invaluable information for nearly 20 criminal cases in state and federal jurisdictions, she was entered into the Federal Witness Protection Program to guard her life from the threat posed by her, quote, gang family. But life in witness protection was not easy for an unaccompanied 16-year-old girl. Mind you, to back it up a bit, okay? I'm sorry. The fact that she was allowed to become an informant at 16 years old, but like that's when she like entered the program, okay? There's no fucking chance that she had time to give information about upwards of 20 fucking cases, all right, just in the span, right? Let's say between 14 and 16 years old. This is what she's doing. We're allowing that to happen. Adult seasoned law enforcement is, is sending a child, a minor girl, into the front lines of, of gang inner workings and gang warfare and saying, let us know what you find. Don't worry, we'll protect you later. She's unaccompanied. How can she even make that decision? I'm sorry. How can she even, we even allow her to make that decision? Uh, that floors me beyond reason. That floors me beyond reason. And for those who would say, oh, well, like her information helped protect other people. Da, da, da. What, where was her protection? There are hundreds, if not thousands, of cases and instances where informants have been killed and have been injured and met with violence and not survived because they decided to inform, and many of them have been minors. Many of them have been minors. But they are unaccompanied. They rarely have family who care about them, and it clearly it rarely makes the news because this happens all the fucking time. And I think it should make all of us sick. She contributed, she gave information, all right, to contribute to upwards of 20 fucking cases as an unaccompanied 16-year-old girl, all right? Okay, so she's entering federal witness protection at that. The loneliness, isolation, and strict rules soon became unbearable for Brenda. Despite the risk to her life, she invited her gang friends to her safe house and at the end of the visit decided to return home with them and leave the witness protection program soon after. Her lifeless body was found by a fisherman laid in a stream. Members of her gang were charged and convicted with her murder. There is an inherent tension reflected by Brenda's awful, horrifying case study between the need for law enforcement agencies to provide protection to juvenile witnesses and informants and the difficulties in effectively protecting them due to their adolescent nature, especially where unaccompanied minors are involved. These youth are devoid of fam familial structure and are unable to benefit from the supervision, protection, and support naturally provided by parents, guardians, teachers, or other adult figures. As a result, they depend on the whims of law enforcement and the criminal justice system to take their best interests and needs into consideration and provide them with the oversight and supervision required of a child. I'm sorry if I, me at 16, me at 16, I can't tell you that I wouldn't have called my homies up too. Are you fucking kidding? Are you out of your mind? Someone who had never had family in her life, but, but knew the difference between right and wrong, knew that something was going on. So she decided to help and, and she can't be protected. And I, whatever, you know, you want to say, about that, I think that that's a failure of our law enforcement. Absolutely. Absolutely. Either for throwing her into that situation or for, you know, 
basically making it a requirement that she be able to stay in the witness protection program without any oversight or guidance and be able to call her homies up and have no one to to keep her from that world because she's a child. She's a child and she deserves better. And she paid for it with her life. Another case is the murder of Princess Hansen in January of 2004. She was slated to be the government's star witness in a high-profile gang-related murder, and her impending testimony was no secret. It is a case that shook Washington, D.C. when it happened. Before Princess could testify, she was murdered. Princess was only 14 years old. Less than one mile from the capital, the crime made national headlines. Gunned down by two masked men in her friend's house one night, Princess died instantly. Thank God. Keisha, age six, was there that night, and so was her sister Tara, age 12, and her brother Antoine, age nine. Tara was shot in the leg before she scooted out of range of the gunfire. Afterwards, Keisha, Tara, and Antoine were afraid to talk about it, and they were not alone. Police and prosecutors urged the children to cooperate with their investigation, but the family was unwilling. No fucking shit. You couldn't protect our daughter. And now you want our, our remaining three children to, to do what she did. Sure. Because they were afraid to talk for fear the defendants would retaliate against them. And because they were wary of prosecutors who promised to protect them and did not, they declined to participate. But that frustrated prosecutors who referred the family to Child Protective Services alleging in retaliation for the family not cooperating and testifying for the prosecutor's investigation of the murder of their daughter, their 14-year-old daughter, because her identity and her location was left unprotected, left exposed. Prosecutors referred the family to Child Protective Services, alleging that the parents would not participate in a safety plan to protect their children. They blamed the parents. As a result, the children landed in foster care. Almost three years later, prosecutors subpoenaed the children to testify before a grand jury and then at the criminal child trial, but the children were still afraid. The children who are in foster care now because of the prosecutor's retaliation against the family. The prosecutors had never met the children before the trial started, and the children did not know what to expect. The children wanted to testify outside the presence of the men accused of killing Princess, but the prosecutors refused, arguing that the children would be fine, so the children's requests were denied. Once the trial began, it was full of horrible images of grim testimony about sex, drugs, and violence. When the youngest, Keisha, took the stand... Their court-appointed lawyer recalled that she could not answer any of the prosecutor's questions. The first question, quote, where were you born and where do you reside, confused Keisha, and she answered when she was born instead. Her answers to the prosecutor's subsequent questions were similarly non-responsive, reflecting her lack of understanding, and shortly after Keisha started testifying, she's visibly shut down on the witness stand. She appeared startled, and when she understood that she was not answering as expected, her shoulders began to hunch, her head dipped, and she started to answer, I don't know, in response to every question. The judge and many female members of the jury looked at the prosecutor with shock, horror, and disgust. The judge called a short recess, and Keisha jumped off the witness stand and ran out of the courtroom. When the trials resumed, Keisha's barely audible testimony was still confusing and contradictory, 
So the prosecutor impeached the now nine-year-old girl using her own prior grand jury testimony given months earlier. Notwithstanding all of the issues with Keisha's testimony, the prosecutors were ultimately, by focusing on other stronger evidence, still able to win their case, which if any defense attorneys are watching, criminal defense attorneys, you'll know, prosecutors don't have to do fucking much to do that sometimes because the law is often on their side by default, which is why our system is very fucked oftentimes. So why compel Keisha to testify? She was never properly prepared for trial. She was never hidden in the Witness Protection Program, mind you, okay? Still the same name, still the same face, all of it, still attached to her. She was never properly prepared for trial. No aides were employed to help elicit her testimony. Her testimony utterly lacked probative value, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Magnifying Keisha's anxiety may have been the prosecutor's very reason for calling her to convict the defendant by sacrificing the child. In criminal cases, prosecutors often compound the trauma child witnesses endure when they don't have to. That touches on a very larger problem with prosecution in the United States and with how we deal with child witnesses who are not afforded the absolute right to a court-appointed attorney to advocate for their own rights, right, and to diminish their own trauma. They're literally at the hands of the prosecutors who are having them testify, okay? Um, but you see the benefit of the fucking witness protection program working as, as it should, right? If the witness protection program had been employed when it should have been for Princess, their older sister, this shit wouldn't have happened. This shit wouldn't have happened. And it was 2004. The witness protection program had been in place for years and years and years. The discretion of the attorney general of whether or not to put place people in this program can be misused, can be abused, if you can't fucking tell. Another case involves 15-year-old David Luna. While walking home from his South Central Los Angeles high school, 15-year-old David Luna witnessed a drive-by shooting. The shooting left two teenagers injured and one dead. David recognized the gunmen as members of a neighborhood gang. After questioning residents in the neighborhood where the shooting took place, the police discovered that David was an eyewitness. The district attorney later asked David to testify against the gunmen. David refused because he feared the gang would retaliate against him. The district attorney, however, forced David to testify to protect David from retaliation. The district attorney sought a protective order to permit the permanent non-disclosure of David's name. The district attorney believed that without David's name, the gang could not retaliate against him because it would not be able to identify or locate him. However, the trial did court denied the request, citing the Sixth Amendment, Confrontation Clause of the United States Constitution, which provides that all criminally accused have the right to confront the witnesses used against them. Even if you do ultimately go into the witness protection program, that happens afterward, okay? Because it is the accused's right to be able to see who the fuck is naming names, all right? It's just, just a facet of our system. And unfortunately, when these things are handled, um, it can place the person testifying in a very precarious, dangerous position, regardless of whether they are promised witness protection after the trial is finished. Two days into David's testimony, so he's not finished with it, okay? Apparently, he was on the stand for several days. Um, members of the neighborhood gang brutally beat and stabbed him to death at his home without David's completed testimony. The prosecution lacked sufficient evidence to convict the killers in the original murder, murder and therefore dropped the charges against him. 
And so we walk a fine line, right? We walk a fine line between ensuring that a defendant's potential conviction, okay, is not later overturned because of clear violations of his Sixth Amendment right to confront the witnesses against them because you're concealing that witness for whatever reason, uh, even if it is for their protection. And um, the right for witnesses to, oh, I don't know, be safe and not have their lives threatened after their subpoena to testify just because they saw some shit or because they have some information. Uh, yeah, it's a fine line. And still, we walk it and don't always balance on it properly. As quoted in the California Court of Appeal case in 1993, Wallace versus City of Los Angeles, quote, without a continuing and visible public commitment to witness protection, it is unrealistic to expect citizens to come forward and provide the information so critical to the successful operation of the criminal justice system. To the extent that government fails to meet this essential responsibility, it cedes control of our cities to the criminals, quote unquote. That's what some people think. The final case I will tell you about is the case of Ricky Prince. The courtroom was packed. The prosecutor's words rang out like a death sentence. The prosecutor announced, quote, Ricky Prince would testify that he saw the defendant shoot at the victim's group. The courtroom erupted. Several days later, 17-year-old Ricky Prince was kidnapped by two gang members, driven to a landfill, and shot in the back of the head. The prosecutor had effectively condemned his own witness to death by reading his name aloud to a courtroom filled with the defendant's friends, two of whom found and killed Ricky. Ricky was an innocent bystander to the original crime who had only agreed to testify because his mother had urged him to give a statement to the police. He was unaware he was in danger and continued to go to school and work. His name was revealed to the defendant during discovery, and although the defendant had agreed to plead guilty, thereby making Ricky's testimony unnecessary, he was still murdered for being willing to testify. Ricky Prince's brutal 2004 murder was tragic, but he would not have been kidnapped and shot had the prosecutor simply described Ricky as a, quote, witness instead of using his full fucking name. The greater tragedy is that Ricky's murder is not an anomaly. Although not all witnesses are murdered for agreeing to testify, as of 1995, prosecutors estimated that victim and witness intimidation plays a role in 75 to 100 percent of violent criminal cases. Witness intimidation is so pervasive because often the judicial system allows it or stomachs it at the very least. Defendants are permitted to abuse the Sixth Amendment's confrontation clause, according to some. They have the power to use the right not as a shield to protect against conviction by ex parte affidavits, but as a sword to gain access to and intimidate witnesses. This abuse, argues some, creates a gaping hole in witness protection. I would add to that that we are placing a whole lot of blame on defendants, on defense attorneys, on the Sixth Amendment as an enigma, as an idea, as a principle, and not on the prosecutors, the law enforcement, the justice system officials that are the ones bungling it, fumbling it, shooting it in the back of the head. If you want to have a witness protection program actually work, you should employ it when it should be employed, and you shouldn't fuck around with it. And you should use it, especially for a goddamn 16, 17-year-old 
a 17-year-old Ricky Prince. I'll tell you that much, right? And of course, we're going to hear about the most inflammatory cases. We're going to hear about the cases that shock and awe out of the probably thousands where everything went well, where people, witnesses were protected properly, and um, also where witnesses who are in the program uh, do not abuse their protection by committing crimes going AWOL um, and people being negatively impacted by it like Janet Schlatter was. In a 2017 article written by Robert Anglin for The Republic, the headline reads, quote, who protects the public from protected witnesses? The Federal Witness Protection Program is designed to ensure government witnesses who are mostly career criminals remain safe before, during, and after their testimony. From that standpoint, its track record is perfect. No active participant in the Witness Protection Program has ever been harmed or killed, according to the U.S. Marshals Service, which oversees and manages the program. But is the public protected from protected witnesses? Associates of Arizona businessman Frank Capri would tell you no. Capri made deals with developers across the country who had no clue he once was Frank Gioa Jr., a, quote, made man in the New York Mafia. Gio was passed as a soldier in the notorious Lucchesi crime family, was erased when he agreed to turn state's evidence in 1994 over as part of a deal with federal prosecutors. The government enrolled him in the Federal Witness Protection Program. It gave him a new name, social security number, and background, which helped him begin a new life as a real estate developer and restaurateur. However... <laughs> An investigation by the Arizona Republic revealed that Capri used his government-provided identity to negotiate deals to build Toby Keith's I Love This Bar and Grill restaurants throughout the United States, take tens of millions of dollars from mall owners and developers, and then walk away. Once a criminal, always a criminal. I do not believe that. But, like, sometimes you give a mouse a cookie, right? Like, look, listen, look and listen. There is no oversight for some of these people the government isn't checking in, clocking in to be like, hey, what are you doing with that new identity, homeboy? Apparently, embezzlement, extortion. But they're getting away with it. So who gives, like, what? Gioa helped put more than 70 mobsters behind bars and closed several unsolved murders, including the 1977 shooting of a New York City police officer. But the anonymity created through the Witness Protection Program allowed him to launch damaging new business ventures. The FBI and the U.S. Department of Justice denied turning a blind eye to potential criminal conduct. The Department of Justice remains committed to holding accountable those who conduct criminal activity and threaten the rule of law, Nora Sheeland of the FBI National Press Office said in a statement. Officials with both agencies declined to respond to a detailed list of questions about the GEOA case. <laughs> Witness Production Program is what it is, and all we have to go off of as an oversight for, like, you know, what I talked about in the beginning, the audit of this fucking program, okay, is basically what the U.S. Marshal is, like, self-reporting to itself and then self-reporting to us about it. Which is kind of, you know, insane. Like, obviously, you know, whoever's in the kitchen, the cook in the kitchen telling you how the kitchen's running, obviously, they're going to inflate the numbers. Okay, they're going to say it's going great. And they're going to say that we definitely, probably definitely know where all the terrorists in the program are. But sometimes maybe we don't. But like, who really cares? My rebuttal for this week's episode is simply that Doug, Schlatter, wherever you are, send that check to your wife, okay, your baby mother, your wife. If you are an heir of Douglas Schlatter, send the money. Douglas Schlatter is not alive. He is probably rotting somewhere, okay? He's dead. He died in 2006. But however, if you are an heir of Douglas Schlatter, you need to send a check 
to the heirs of Janet Slaughter, all right? Goddamn. She got the L of all L's. She didn't do shit about shit. Deadbeat husband, deadbeat father. Even if he was a good dad to you, make it right, okay? Because what the fuck? Our girl Janet had to stand up on her tippy toes and her cute high heels with her cute bob in the goddamn fucking early 80s as a single fucking mother married to that fool, okay, with all of his debts and his dumb fucking ideas, his dumb fucking decisions hanging over her head, her responsibility, had to stand up there on a fucking piece of fucking paper, all right, read out a list of his deadbeat assery in order to literally get a pulse from anybody, anybody to give a fuck. And even though, yeah, they passed the Reform Act to the Witness Protection Program in 1984, it's not like that gave her the money that she needed, okay? Oh, yeah, they set up a victim's fund. I hope she was first in line. I hope she was first in line. If any of y'all know where Janet Slaughter is, tell her hello. Tell her I love her. Tell her I'm sorry. Tell her I'd give her a hug. Goddamn. I know that she probably has passed by now. I didn't look it up. You guys don't look it up. Like, I don't want to bug her anymore. I'm sure she has. But like her her children, Douglas Slaughter's children, I hope you all are living long and happy, plentiful, bountiful lives. Karma comes back around. Goddamn. And another rebuttal is if you are ever in the witness protection program, don't be a fucking deadbeat dad. God bless. Send that child custody check. Pay your bills. Pay your child custody. Pay your baby mother's rent and shut up and shut your fucking mouth. Thank you, guys. See you next time. Love you. Love you.